This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and Salut Babette. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, upon whose land we are broadcasting tonight, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Tonight's show is called Building the Business Coalition. It's from the Climate Emergency Summit at Melbourne Town Hall in February 2020. And it's about how the businesses that have possibly, many of them, got us into this uh, state of climate catastrophe uh, are needed to change their game and lift their game and get us out of it. The speakers are Ian Dunlop, Heidi Lee, Simon Holmes Court, Paul Gilding, and the MC is journalist Paddy Madding. This is a discussion about how business can be engaged in the colossal transition we need. The first speaker is Ian Dunlop, who talks about the predatory delay that our government is engaged in and the court cases that he expects on these ethically bankrupt corporations. And he knows as an insider of the, both the coal and the oil industry. It was often mentioned at this summit how companies like Exxon had the best science years ago and the best understanding of risk, but they have allowed the approaching tipping points to happen. It puts the whole idea of expecting such crooks to become climate leaders into a cocked hat, in my opinion, but it's a very interesting discussion. Paul Goulding shows us through his uh, recent booklet called Climate Contagion that the threat of climate disruption is matched by the threat of collapsing fossil fuel industries, which could take us all with it, with them. He said he had failed, really, in trying to warn them and to get them to make the transition. He feels they're now too stuck in their ways. And Christine Milne, on another panel, said that she felt it was a great danger that they would be um, positioning themselves to say that they're too big to fail and that we should bail them out, in fact, subsidise their transition. That is what the movement has to face, that unless we get organised now and start shutting them down in a systematic way, then they will, it will get to the point where they all have to be shut down together and you will have economic collapse. So the first thing to do is remove the subsidies. Heidi Lee and Simon Holmes Accord give a more upbeat tempo to this panel discussion. They show with practical examples the problems that businesses face in decarbonise. It's an expensive business and they need incentives and they also need advice. They show that how working uh, with communities such as Beyond Zero Emissions did with Collie in Western Australia will yield solid results. And this was the most practical and energetic presentation of the lot, if you ask me. And uh, Heidi got a resounding round of applause. But there is a frustration throughout that the heavy lifting will have to be done by government and we can't imagine that with a government so unresponsive to the community. Privatisation of the electricity sector hasn't brought benefits, according to Simon Holmes' accord. And businesses need unified policies to drive the transition we need. 
panel didn't take on the concept so often seen at climate actions. You know, you see those signs saying we need need system change, not climate change. And in a future program, you will hear about my rising doubts about big government-owned projects like Snowy 2.0. So I don't think the real solution is just that the government needs to roll out mega projects. They may not be uh, getting the best advice. The system we've got now of crony capitalism, I suppose you could call it, favouring big banks, big miners, big agribusinesses and eventually big renewables, seems plainly incapable of preventing ecocide. And I found a quote by uh, Michael Lowy. He said... We are passengers on a suicidal train called modern industrial capitalist civilization. We are hurtling towards catastrophic climate change. The end of the quote, and I would think as our government members are always saying, you know, radical climate change will wreck our economy. I mean, Barnaby Joyce says that all the time. Uh, he needs to think that uh, it's not the uh, climate action that's going to wreck the economy, it's the economy going along uh, with not enough radical intervention that will wreck all of us. And I think we need to put on the emergency brakes around ecocidal businesses, regulate them, prevent them doing any more damage. That's just my take on it. But I'd like to hear what you think. If you have any comments, please contact us at Radio 3CR or at uh, radioteam at bze.org.au. And therefore we can all lock into that and everything will be fine. That basically means we do nothing for another 20 years and then we all you know, accelerate the process in the last 10 if, that, if we follow what's happened in the past. So the question really uh, is that will business leaders accept this honestly and start to address it? And are they prepared to actually act on it? Because this requires massive change in the way the business community look at it. And as Paul said, History is not on their side. I mean, we haven't seen any change, really. Um, you know, we, we've talked about this. We have processes. We have the UN. We have business groupings all around the world working on the solutions. But nothing is reducing emissions. So, I mean, you tend to come to the point of agreeing with what Paul says. These guys won't do it. So the question now is, they must be given the challenge of saying, well, show us, can you do it? Are you prepared to do it? and be held to the task, or they disappear. And that's quite simply where we've got to. And uh, I know there's a lot of discussion going on around the world about how do we accelerate this process and so on. Uh, but we've had it before. I mean, we've seen this going on for 20 years, um, you know, conferences and so on. And there just comes a point where we have to say that's enough. Stop. We now need to see this occur. It's got to start occurring in the next two, three years. Um, no longer than that and uh, the only way that's going to happen is if groups like yourselves, communities um, the other sectors of the business community that are in the solutions end of it, the genuine solutions end start making far more noise and that pressure is brought to bear on, on political systems to change I mean politicians will not follow I mean I think it was a, a French politician in the 1820s fifties or sometimes said, oh, there go, <coughs> there go the people I must follow for I am their leader. And that's basically what's happening. Right? Um, the changes in Canberra at one level are nice to see, but Canberra has basically been about process and so has the business community. It's not been about outcomes. What we now have to see are outcomes. So I would encourage you to spread that message 
And if you have shares and you have uh, business contacts and whatever, please make it very clear to them this is what we now expect. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Um, um, the next speaker, Heidi Lee, has um, is, describes herself as a reformed architect and um, and is also is now the business and industry manager for Beyond Zero Emissions, which was, um, from memory, set up at around the same time as Climate Code Red came out, and um, and was linked to Safe Climate Australia, which was um, Philip Sutton, one of the co-authors, was um, was uh, involved with. And, uh, and was a fantastic organisation that very much was solutions focused. And, uh, and so Heidi is going to talk to us now about, uh, you know, just exactly how much we know already. Thanks, Taddy, and um, thanks everyone for coming today. I think this is an incredibly important discussion to have when we're looking for solutions to what the problems are and the scale of the problem in front of us. So. When we're looking at um, solutions around business and industry, one of the most recent pieces of work that Beyond Zero Emissions has been doing is looking at the industrial manufacturing sector. So today I'm going to tell you a little bit for anyone who doesn't know who BZE are, Beyond Zero Emissions, what our research base is, what we know we know, the industry engagement program that I'm running this year, and the benefits that you might expect to see on the ground in communities that are most impacted by fossil fuel employment and activities at the moment. Beyond Zero Emissions, we're a climate change solutions think tank, and we have those gorgeous t-shirts worn by that guy right there. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, ten years ago, you're right, Patty, we started publishing Zero Carbon Australia plans. These are ten-year transition plans. We went sector by sector through the economy, energy buildings, transport, land use, and now industry. Um, we use the knowledge base that we've created for outreach as well, and that's always sat alongside the research that we do. So it comes out in publications and launch events and seminars, comes out on our radio show, and you get to hear about it in the news sometimes when we get the right, you know... He's not looking at me. Um, the research base, the Electrifying Industry Report, we hear about the manufacturing sector and the problems that the manufacturing sector in Australia is having right now, rising energy costs, fossil fuel dependencies, and quite wildly inefficient as well. We use more units of energy per dollar of output than any other developed country. There are huge opportunities for improving the efficiency of the sector, but also for electrifying it and repowering it with renewables. So we do the technology um, side of the, the research and, and looking at that, and what we find is that there is absolutely no technical barrier to this. You can run a steel factory on purely electricity. You can uh, make bricks without gas kilns. They, they microwave them, believe it or not, which sounds very exciting to me. And um, as part of being the business and industry lead, I also get to go out and visit places around Australia like steel factories and get to see some of these electric arc furnaces in action that can replace gas furnaces in the steel-making process. Of course, you've still got to do some, um, get some input from metallurgists to make sure that the steel you're making is still good without coal, but it can be done, and it is being done overseas. So 
I'm going to be solutions focused here. This isn't about the scale of the problem. This is about looking in the mirror and saying, well, what's the role of an independent think tank that writes about these solutions in solving the issues in front of us? So with that, we went and developed what we're calling an industry engagement program. I'm the business and industry lead. I'm focusing on implementing the outcomes from our electrifying industry research through the usual channels. So partnering with industry groups to run seminars or with large organisations to go in and actually work with them to um, share the good news about you know, the solutions that all electric um, products and equipment can, can deliver. I'm working with communities that already exist, so mobilising that community of experts. I'm talking about professionals and, and bona fide experts, people who've been doing this for however many years and, and bring enormous credibility to the knowledge that we're sharing right now. So actually mobilising those people, making sure that they are networked across all of the different decision makers and players in this space to actually make the good ideas, those bright ideas, come into fruition. And thirdly, we are actually partnering with businesses in the manufacturing space to help them secure grants for those um, companies that are looking to be leaders, to, who are looking to do something radical that's beyond business as usual, that could actually transform their local community. Um, we're partnering with them in a knowledge share capacity to help them uh, meet the requirements of grants. We're calling that one the, the zero carbon factory. So always uh, bail me up with factory leads. That's a really fun part of what I get to do. When you look at all this, what would happen if we actually implemented all these solutions um, across the country? So we go back to the research side of BZE, and last year we also published two reports that looked at communities in Australia. One was in the Northern Territory. That one's called the 10 gigawatt vision. And that was actually really about lifting the ambition for what the Northern Territory can achieve if it actually deployed and capitalised on all the renewable energy potential that the place has. What you can do equates to about 8,000 new jobs for the Territory. There's 250,000 people that live in the Northern Territory, 8,000 new jobs over that 10 years. 5,000 of them will be ongoing. The shale gas um, proposal from the, from the government up there, um, the most optimistic projection there was 500, 5,000 to 500. We also looked at another smaller community. We looked at it, the town of Collie in southwest Western Australia. And this project here was really looking at um, working closely with unions, working closely with the business community around what is going to happen. They're, they are facing the imminent closure of coal-fired power stations and all of the mines that go and feed into that. So what we found there was that this um, repowering with renewables, actually scaling up the manufacturing sector, can provide them with around 1,700 jobs instead of the 1,200 that they will lose. So this is actually a transition plan. It's food for the conversations that the unions and the businesses are having with the government around what support do they need to actually make the change? How can this be a win for the community? So we say if you look to renewable energy and you look to electrifying industry, you'll find jobs there that actually suit the skills base for people who have been working in fossil fuel dependent sectors. This is not about boilermakers making lattes. This is about actually having high skill jobs, high quality jobs in industries that have a long term future in our country. With that, I will just say a quick thanks. So we are 90% 
uh, powered by volunteers. We literally, 90% of the work hours BZE does is through volunteers. So thank you, because I know there's going to be people in the audience who've contributed. So thanks to you for the knowledge base and the outreach that makes the work that we're doing now with business and industry possible. And special thank you to anyone who's donating large and small. All makes a difference. Thanks, Heidi. Hal, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. And our last speaker is um, Simon Holmes Accord, um, son of the great mining entrepreneur Robert Holmes Accord, uh, and, uh, and also a, a, a pioneer of um, community wind. So I first interviewed Simon when he was doing the Hepburn Wind Project, which is the first community-owned wind farm in the country, and, uh, and is a, a commentator and also a senior advisor to the Energy Transition Hub at Melbourne University and a board member of the Smart Energy Council. Thanks, everyone, for coming along today. Um, great panel to be on. I'll stand near this microphone. Um, we had a carbon price just seven years ago. Uh, it was working really well. Emissions started coming down. Business, uh, a lot of businesses changed their, changed their plans uh, in order to accelerate uh, the energy transition. Uh, and our farmers were on track to enter into uh, international carbon trading markets that would have, uh, ironically, they would be exporting billions of dollars of credits uh, now. We had a change of government and we uh, dismantled that scheme and business sat by. Uh, not only did they not speak up uh, about, uh, about the dismantling of the scheme, but many of our large groups cheered. Uh, here I have um, uh, a press, press release from the Australian Industry Group, Business Council Australia and the Minerals Council, all cheering uh, that, that we'd got rid of this, this carbon price. Well. Things didn't change for a very long time. Back in uh, only 18 months ago, the Business Council put out a tweet uh, that sent shivers through a lot of people's spines. They said 45% emissions reduction is an economy-wrecking target. Uh, this was only 18 months ago. Fast forward to Monday, uh, Zali Stegel put out a, uh, she announced or formally released her zero emissions by 2050 uh, bill. And on Q&A that night, we had Jennifer Westacott, the CEO of the Business Council, uh, giving what I thought, for, for someone in her position, a very strong endorsement of, of the target and of the bill, uh, and walking back some of the comments they'd made previously on using Kyoto credits to cheat on our international commitments. Um, a big shift uh, over, over the last 18 months. State of play. Uh, well, so, what, what's, what's brought this about? Or what, what's the state of these three organisations? Business Council has a new chair. Uh, we've got a tech uh, chair um, from, from MyOB versus the previous chair uh, was an oil and gas chair from Origin. Um, that's part of, part of the significant shift, I think. Uh, the organisation has also been under fire uh, significantly from uh, various activist campaigns I'll talk about in a bit. Uh, they've, had, um, they've, they've been put on notice by a number of members. Now, it's only, it, it's only a start, but they're in a different position to where they were uh, even 18 months ago. The AI group is starting to make some positive noises along the same uh, line. Uh, the MCAO, the Minerals Council, I wish I could uh, talk up progress there, but we're not seeing it. They're, they're still spruiking you know, 
quote, and I've got to put lots of quotes, uh, clean coal, uh, their heli campaign, coal plus um, uh, carbon capture and storage, uh, and they've waded significantly into the nuclear debate um, recently. But the um, Minerals Council is also weakened by a number of uh, very uh, strategic campaigns. There has been a societal shift uh, over, over the last 18 months. Uh, climate scepticism is becoming a lot more rare uh, out there. Um, there's, there's a, I love that a quote from Max Planck that science advances one funeral at a time. Right? It's um, uh, five, six, seven years ago uh, we, we had a lot more uh, uh, old-timers, I guess, in business circles who had grown up in the resource sector, had denialist views, and are on the outer. Uh, they're on the outer now. So, uh, you know, no longer do we have people like Morris Newman and Dick Warburton representing uh, business uh, at, uh, in, in Canberra. Um, they're very well and truly retired. Public attitudes have, have shifted. The, the fires uh, have, have certainly helped shift. Uh, I think you know, people are seeing the predictions come th through, uh, and there, uh, there is fatigue uh, over, over the, uh, this issue not being settled. Um, professional groups are standing up, so it's not just the environment groups. That, that it's not just um, you know, the good folks at Greenpeace, ACF, and WWF who are, who are championing uh, climate action, but we're now seeing uh, doctors, uh, the engineers declare movement, uh, architects, lawyers, uh, also, also um, pharma, the Farmers for Climate Action, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, there are a whole lot of non-traditional uh, speakers in this place, in, in the space, saying enough. And of course the youth engagement, I, I, I think um, people have every right to be stunned by how quickly that movement came together. And uh, you know, every, almost every one of those kids uh, in, in this photo, I would say you know, probably two-thirds of them uh, would be voting uh, in the next election and uh, the remainder will be voting in the election after that. Uh, plus, they all go home and talk to their parents and engaging in, in new ways. So I, I, um, it, the, the significance of all of these together have shifted the environment that business operates within. External pressure is coming on the business through, uh, through, through new, new NGO approaches, uh, market forces, sort of name, and, name and shame approach to, to uh, convince companies not to, not to back the Adani project. Uh, we've seen uh, GHD and Downer and a whole lot of, whole lot of companies say, no, we're not going to have any part in building, uh, in, in building this infrastructure. Uh, and that's come out of um, uh, very multifaceted pressure points applied on those, on those businesses. Shareholder resolutions, folks like the Australian Centre uh, for Corporate Responsibility, uh, do a fantastic job putting up uh, very, very professional, going, going through all the right channels to get motions at annual general meetings, to, uh, to have companies review their uh, their membership of professional organisations and the, the pressure on Rio Tinto and BHP to review their membership of the business of, of, sorry, of the Minerals Council uh, has has put immense pressure. BHP represents 17% of Minerals Council's revenue, just that one membership fee. So when BHP says we want you to uh, stop being uh, overtly climate denialists, uh, the MCA. Uh, is, is struggling to resolve that issue, but certainly they are, they are, are not doing so. They're not playing such a public uh, destructive role. Um, renewal, groups like Greenpeace are, uh, are 
putting out uh, uh, rankings of businesses on, on how, how aggressively they're moving towards decarbonising their electricity, so that's sort of more on the name and, name and shame. Uh, and then other positive uh, um, responses, uh, things like the, the RE100, phenomenal effort. Uh, there's 221 international, multinational companies that have signed up to go 100% before 2030. Uh, a lot of them are finding they can do it faster than they originally said, and some of them uh, are announcing they're 100% already. Together, um, th this, this list is, um, was the first 110 or so logos. Uh, it's, it's, it's double that now. There's about, uh, I think, eight or nine companies in Australia that have signed up this. The top five banks are all on board. Uh, uh, insurance companies and uh, property trusts have all signed up, and we're seeing uh, a, a, um, that, that membership is, is, is growing uh, growing exponentially. And then the, the governance and risk frameworks that, um, that directors are very aware of. Uh, not only have we got the, the ASX and ASIC uh, uh, telling companies they have to start disclosing climate risks uh, and, the, and the RBA making su such statements, but I had a friend who, who did the Australian Institute of, Corp of, of Company Directors course the other day, the training, and they've rewritten their training materials. So in the very first unit, you're talking about climate risk. Uh, and the you know, directors, uh, you know, the, 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 they, they absolutely have to look after the interests of the companies, but all of them are concerned about their own um, fiduciary uh, duties and the risk that that places on them. Uh, internal pressures uh, on companies. So the, the goalposts are moving. For the, the one thing that companies look at above all else is the ability to make profits. The profitability of the gas and coal sectors uh, is becoming harder and harder uh, to, to make the business cases. As soon as you put in a, a carbon risk, uh, it, destroys, it destroys many business cases going forward. So the fundamentals are changing. Uh, but one thing that I think uh, it doesn't get enough airtime is what's called the war for talent. Uh, if you're, an in, if, if you're, you're a, uh, in the knowledge economy, if you're a, um, uh, a software company, uh, you're very aware of this, but across, across the workforce, uh, it is harder and harder to employ young people who don't agree with the values uh, of, of the company. And when, you know, young folks are joining engineering firms and in their, in their interviews they're asking, you know, does this company work for fossil fuel companies? And uh, if, they, if, if a company can't answer the right way, they go to the next company. Um, we spoke um, uh, at an event with Mike Cannon-Brooks recently from Atlassian, who was one of the first companies to sign up to the RE100. And they've found that uh, RE100 membership has energised a whole layer of the business. People have, are, um, are signing up to all sorts of working groups trying to work out how the company not only goes to 100% renewable, but zero carbon across the board. Uh, and it's, it's a real um, retention and excitement, you know, excitement amongst, amongst the employees. We're not through the gate yet. There's a long way to go. Um, the, you know, it's one thing for the Business Council to come out with a statement like that and the Minerals Council to soften, but let's, um, let's see what happens. Uh, the proof is in the pudding, and, and we've got one test point with this zero-carbon bill that's going through. We still have federal antipathy towards doing anything in the climate space, anything constructive, uh, and we still have this revolving door uh, of... You know, in, in, in the Prime Minister's office, we have two coal executives uh, that have moved from the Minerals Council uh, through, through to uh, sitting in the senior advisors to the Prime Minister, uh, and, and we have MPs that, are, that do the same. Ian, you, you're out of that world. I think you were President or Secretary of the um, Institute of Company Directors. You've written recently that you know, there is a, there is a, a kind of old a director's club, a 
boys club mostly are we still you know, are our boards still under the grip of you know the greenhouse mafia or is that starting to change to a large extent they still are i mean the problem is there's a senior cadre of directors in this country who have exercised enormous influence on the direction of companies for many many years now and what Paul's described I mean, is what I call predatory delay, where people have said, look, yes, climate change may be an issue, but governments won't act within the next 10 years, and therefore this is a good business, we can make good profit, so we'll keep investing in it until we reach the point where somebody's going to do something. Now, I mean, that's ethically and morally bankrupt if you know what the implications of climate change are, and these are companies that have the best access to the climate science and interpretation and the understanding of risks of anybody in the system. So they've quite deliberately gone ahead and allowed this to happen. And, you know, we, we have a small um, cadre of directors in this country. A very small number of them have ex exerted enormous influence and stopped, because of peer pressure, people moving away from what I call groupthink. In other words, everybody's in it. It's the lemming thing that Paul mentioned, is that nobody wants to be the first to you know, put up the flag and say, hey, this isn't right. Now, it is still a problem. It's probably starting to break down, but it's why, you, in my view, you have to keep on talking about what the risks really are because people haven't accepted them yet. We know the solutions are all there, as Heidi said. I mean, it's all coming through. We should have been doing it long ago. We haven't. And now we have no choice but making it absolutely crystal clear that this now has to happen. And the one thing is emission reduction. That's what you've got to keep pushing. It's no good, you know, pretending we're going to do something five years down the line or something. You've got to do it now. So the pressure's got to be on all of those companies to do that. And you actually do need them to get involved in doing it because they're the ones who are going to have to make a lot of the change. And the other big dimension that isn't talked about is the fact that if you're in these high-risk situations, there is going to be major change. Unless you plan for that transition, it's going to be an awful mess. And you've already seen it in what's happened in the south coast of New South Wales and Malakuta in the last few months. I mean, you look at the way in which society starts to break down when these sort of impacts come in. Nobody was prepared for it. The government says they were, but they weren't. Uh, we all scramble to respond and put all these things in place, and Australia generally does that pretty well. But the fact is that you're now going to have large numbers of people having to change their activities, move out of the coal industry into other industries, and unless you plan for that, a lot of people are going to get hurt. So it's in everybody's interest to make sure the government starts to take the view and the companies themselves take the view of planning for that transition logically. Um, it could have been slower and more orderly. It won't be now because we've let it too late. But we can still avoid creating an absolute shambles. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Um, Heidi, you know, Beyond Zero has been laying out solutions now for more than a decade. In your work with the, um, you know, engaging with the industry in the last year, do you get a sense that there's a willingness to, you know, put serious capital um, from business into the solutions that, 
you know, beyond zero is busy identifying? I think as much capital as is available, absolutely. But there's still the loss leader risk here where when I'm specifically working with really high energy users, because that's the, the research plan that we're looking at implementing here, they don't have buckets of capital sinking fund out the back waiting to like invest in a new, this electric arc furnace that I tell you is very, very impressive. They don't have that waiting out the back. They have been ground down by lack of clear policy and lack of clear investment direction for many, many years. So this is a whole sector of our economy that has basically been left out or left behind of serious planning about what this transition is actually going to look like. And that's where the actual work one-on-one -on -one with some of those companies to try and get some of the technical solutions that the Swedish steelmakers are using, that these other technologies, they're more affordable overseas, and just to help them get that, that difference, that delta between what they've got and what they actually need to do to help shift the whole sector behind them to actually make the change. So there is certainly no lack of willingness. Electrical engineers are your best friends in the transition. They're going to win upside and down. So it's really about finding those heroes within the business that are doing their part, and that's, that's what all of us get to do. But businesses, certainly, there's been no resistance to spending the money. They're happy to spend it differently, but they can't, at the moment, budge from that three-year return on investment in the manufacturing sector, which is, which is incredibly hard to innovate within. One thing it seems to me it comes back to, although we're talking about business changing attitudes, it does come back to um, leadership from the federal government. And um, Simon, it seems like um, you know, if you look at, for example, as you've written recently for the Guardian, um, the government's announcements. Uh, you know, the first bilateral deal we saw with, between the Feds and New South Wales on energy um, focuses on gas. Yeah, gas was a big focus of an announcement uh, by the Prime Minister two weeks ago, uh, and just early this week we had um, Professor Alan Finkel at the Press Club uh, talking about the importance of gas uh, for uh, the hydrogen transition that, that, that he's very keen about. I'll just quickly talk about the, the, the first one, the deal with New South Wales. Um, the, the Prime Minister said at that launch, he said that no transition plan exists uh, that doesn't see a greater use for gas. Um, I went looking. I couldn't find a single one. In fact, I found 14 transition plans and reputable ones, ones you know, from, from PwC, from AEMO, the energy market operator, uh, Finkel's own review from 2017. Uh, yeah, all up, the BZE was the first back in 2010. You cannot find a transition plan for Australia that has a greater role uh, for gas, so that was blatant, blatantly false. Um, Someone's giving us, serenading us. Beautiful. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, so that that frames false, and it's and it's it's really about uh, creating more, putting more gas into the market for the for the exports, which you know, four fifths of our gas in Australia is exported uh, overseas. That announcement was purely about uh, export gas. For Finkel, um, uh, um, Finkel's a very very clever man, but I think he. He, he, he thinks of himself a bit as a politician with the Finkel Review uh, and now with his hydrogen. Um, twice we've given a scientist an economist job and they've come back with a political report. Uh, the, the, um, 
uh, he, he, he knows that there's not a long-term future for coal and gas to hydrogen, but he also knows that progressing uh, his plan uh, or his plan won't progress if, if there is an uh, anti-fossil fuel bent in it or if it's a pro-renewable. It, it, the sophistication is, uh, in, in, the, in the coalition party room is so poor on energy that he knows his, 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 his proposals will never go anywhere. So he talks it up, but I, I, I honestly don't believe that he believes that there's a future uh, for gas there. Just one quick thing on, on gas. Who's aware uh, that Woodside has got the, uh, the, the um, consultation period for the Browse project is, is in play right now? Is anyone aware of that? Three, four, five, three, four hands? Um, that, that, that project uh, has a carbon footprint of 500 million tonnes which is five times bigger than the government's $2 billion climate solutions fund. Right? So as, as taxpayers, we're all about to allocate $2 billion to averting just one-fifth the size of Woodside's project, and they don't intend to do a thing to abate that gas. So uh, big parts of the economy aren't feeling the pressure. Most of us don't even know. Um, just interested in, in asking whether you think Australia should be looking for inspiration um, in other countries who are building this business coalition or whether it should be more international or whether Australia is too unique in a situation to, to be kind of copying other countries. Well, look, I mean, this is a global problem. I mean, it can't be solved by Australia in isolation. It's quite clear. But Australia, to follow Simon's comments, I mean... Everybody keeps on telling us politically that we're only 1.3% of global emissions. If you add in the sort of things that Simon's talking about, we very shortly, if it keeps on going, will be the third largest carbon polluter in the world. And we're relying for our future on polluting the world to that extent. So you've got to allow um, and take that into account in the equation. So, I mean, Australia, um, in its own self-interest, is one of the countries most exposed to climate change. It's in our own self-interest to solve this problem. We should be leading the global discussion on achieving the sort of things I'm talking about in you know, emission reductions, which is going to have to involve not just here, but the big emitters around the world. So, you know, we should be taking that leadership, instead of which we've spent 30 years doing everything we possibly can to stop serious climate policy internationally being developed. I mean, that's been the fact ever since John Howard got the famous Australia Clause in the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, which allowed us to increase emissions by 8%, not reduce them, in the first part of the Kyoto Protocol, and it's gone on. So, you know, we have to start to take that international leadership. Paul, you consult to international companies. Do you feel like there is a better environment or a better example of a policy framework overseas that we should be looking to? So definitely, and the answer is in business, that in the countries that have a reasonably good climate position, you know, long-term plans, climate change bills, etc., universally, the business community supports them. Right? So, so what you don't get is the US, you know, et cetera, Australia, because the business community doesn't support it. So if you get the business community on board, then you get this multi... They still argue about the details. Uh, only to colour it with a specific example. So one of the companies that I got to work a little bit more closely with was a large multinational, and what we found was that their Australian-based operations were actually a testing ground 
for the types of technologies they were going to use to decarbonise their, uh, or electrify and then decarbonise their operations in Canada, because Canada had set a price on and some, some financial implications around carbon emissions. But Australia's energy prices and our uh, insecurity around our market and our trajections meant that we were the perfect case. Uh, we could actually get in ahead of Canada because we're, we're going to get so many rewards for this company for doing the exact same thing as they're doing overseas. I've met with a, a number of um, uh, large industrial companies in Germany and uh, Japan recently uh, researching energy transition in, in heavy industry. Met with uh, ThyssenKrupp, a major steel producer in, in Germany, who have absolutely accepted they're going to be zero carbon by 2050 uh, and they're going to be 30% lower by 2030. It's a very challenging task, but they've got their best brains on it and they don't, they're not prevaricating at all. They know they've got to get there. Uh, and I was in, in Japan talking with a major shipping line. Uh, they're, they're wanting to know um, where they're going to get their green ammonia from, their ammonia that's produced uh, with, with renewable energy. Disencrypt the same in Germany. They want to know where their ammonia is going to come from. So Australia, not come from, it'll come from Australia where, where, where we have these boundless plains that are windswept and sun-drenched. The only the only course of action, as far as flying is concerned, is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take. And we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough. This is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles with those people, and you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles. <laughs> and I, you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them, and you understand what I'm talking about. And here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change, we see the requirement for a whole new moral code. I don't think it, there's any doubt at all that the uh, coal miners of North Queensland put the coalition back into power at the last election. Uh, so seriously, with all of this, uh, I think the, one of the big issues, like immediate issues, is to find those guys meaningful jobs. I mean, they're... You, you know, they'll vote that way and, and I think there really has to be a plan about what we're going to do with, with guys that are working in the fossil fuel industries, especially if they're controlling enough votes to, to put the deniers back in power. Thanks very much. And I'll just say I was on that convoy. Um, I was up there and <laughs> just missed the day when actually there was all the um, rough housing as they drove in. Uh, I was bumped into Pauline Hanson on her way back, so you had Catter there, you had uh, a whole bunch of the CFMU giving everyone the day off, free beers, um, yeah, Canavan revving them up, uh, so it was absolutely, and you know, Murdoch Media all the way, um, revving up this, this convoy's coming, and it was a culture war, it was ridiculous, but anyway, I think that we know a couple of other things that got the coalition elected, uh, including a couple of sports rorts. Uh, that we were finding out about last night in the Senate and um, $89 million worth of Clive Palmer's money. But also, um, Simon, you were going to answer about the, the future for coal workers. Could I... I'll, I'll do specifics. I like doing specifics. So, um, first of all, uh, grew up in central Queensland, born in Rockhampton. Hi, Mum. She's grew there as well. 
Um, the work that we did in Collie, we think, and this I would love to get fact-checked because I would really like to make this claim um, more broadly, we think it's the first time that an environmental organisation has worked in partnership with four different workers' unions who are active in that area who are looking for jobs and looking for solutions for their workers. The launch of Collie at the Crossroads, the name of the report we did, um, this was last November we launched it, if I get that date right, but the, um, the unions were there at the launch and we're going back in April to talk again um, at an energy forum with as many unions, as many workers as we can because this is part of actually sharing the news about what to ask for. It is not enough to say no. You have to find something to say yes to and that's what these regional transition reports and these regional transition plans are all about. But they must be done with the real people who are actually impacted by this. Not us latte sippers. It's actual people on the ground who are going to be moving their jobs and going somewhere different for work. They need industry and they need meaningful employment that takes recognition of all the skills that they've already got. Uh, I don't want to detract from that at all. It, 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 no, it, it, it's very important that, that we deliver a, a just transition to coal workers, that we give them a better transition than the car industry uh, took, uh, than, than millions of... You know, dozens of other industries uh, have had in the past. <laughs> yeah, there was no transition plan for journalists. Um, um, Richard Dennis from the Australian Institute often points out that where was a transition plan for the folks who worked in the one-hour photo booths uh, in shopping centres a decade ago? Uh, they, they, were, they had their Kodak moment. Um, uh, we had the, the head of the German Energy Agency came out and saw us recently at Melbourne Uni, and she, she was amused that we spent so much effort in Australia fighting against export coal. Uh, in, in her, her feeling was that coal would leave Australia long before Australia left coal. Um, that uh, it's not that we're telling the coal workers in Queensland, hey, we want you to get out of the industry. It's like, hey, guys, get ready. This industry is going to close. So let's give them a, a, a just transition. Um, uh, um, because of that, but just on the electoral mass, I just the Queensland coal workers didn't control the election, but they certainly the narrative has controlled the current political economy. Only two seats in Queensland flipped at the last election. Okay? Two seats flipped in northern Tasmania. Right? No one's talking about northern Tasmania. The same number of seats flipped there, and in Queensland, one of those seats was the Gold Coast. They weren't voting for coal; they were voting for their tax credits. Uh, and the seat, that did the, the seat that flipped probably on coal was one of the most marginal seats in Australia. So any time you hear people say that the last election was won and lost on coal, that's rubbish. It's important for the political narrative, but it wasn't the electoral maths. Um, I'm sorry, I'm definitely going to run out of time for questions. I was, I'm going to take this um, woman over here on the wall, but also, panellists, do you have time for, like, two more? Have we? Oh, okay, sweet. All right, good. Sorry. Two other speakers Matt. spoke about renewable energies being the future, and I hope it is. But I read in Renew Economy recently that Downer has left Australia. They were going to build a big solar because of the um, transmission problems. Could somebody please answer what, we, what are we going to do? Victoria, apparently, and New South Wales have both been told they have to, the solar plants, they have to only produce half as what they wanted to, and that's not a good um, situation for them economically. 
one of, one of the things that would make a big difference in the renewable energy sector, in the energy sector, is if the government got out of the way. The, the number of uh, government interventions has, and I'm going to put a big asterisk on that, but the, the, the government has got in the way of investor certainty uh, for about a decade now uh, for, for the, the fighting over renewable energy targets and carbon prices, etc., and, and uh, threats to underwrite new coal power, etc. That kills investments. If the government got out of the way, investors would proceed. But there's one thing that government could do and should, what needs to do, the one role it has, is accelerating, uh, removing the roadblocks. And one of the ways to do that is accelerate the transmission upgrades that are required for this restructuring of our network. The investors are there wanting to build. The economic case is there that if, if you build, you reduce energy prices, you reduce emissions very cheaply. The transmission business case is there. If the transmission's built, it'll reduce energy prices and improve security. But we just need the government to accelerate those processes. Some developers were told recently that it would take seven years to before they, they could get around to connecting their farms. We need Federal Energy Minister to step in and accelerate those processes. What about the Greens' proposal for a Green New Deal? You talk about massive public investment in transmission, you know, storage, generation. The, the energy market operator, AMO, puts out an, an annual um, actually every, every two years is, is the integrated system plan. Uh, they, they released it recently. It's a phenomenal document. It shows that uh, under business as usual, assuming the government uh, clears the roadblocks, but under just the, the investment settings we have right now, we're going to end up with a 76% renewable energy uh, network as the least cost going forward um, in 20 years' time. Now, that doesn't seem fast enough, so they've got another case that's science-based, that we can have an 85% reduction of emissions from the electricity sector for only about, I think it's 6% greater cost. It's, it's a phenomenal document that lets out a, people say, we need a plan, or where's the plan? AMO has been producing this plan. They've got 60 people in the long-range forecasting group that have been working on these plans for five years. Uh, it's a phenomenal document. Um, we, it turns out in these documents we don't need a massive investment. We just need a modest investment to be done now rather than being held off for three, four, five years. Look, there's a lot of talk about industry and manufacturing industries, but what about all the small businesses? Is it we're, we're happy to take on more funding to expand our programs. Um, at the moment, <laughs> at the, moment uh, the work that I'm doing with industry does include SMEs, which is like 80% of the manufacturing sector, so might not be small businesses generally, but certainly for in, in our camp and in this program would include um, small manufacturers as well, which is, which is the vast majority of the, um, the employment. The other section, the sector we haven't spoken about is the transport sector, which on current trajectory is projected to, by 2030 to have uh, uh, emissions at 122 per cent on 205 levels, so going the, the wrong way and in, inadequate. And as much as people are walking and cycling and using public transport, we haven't got the infrastructure to carry the mass transit. And the, just like the oil, coal and gas companies, we're being sold autonomous vehicles will fix the problems, uh, uh, electric okay, so vehicles will fix, fit the problems when we, you know, which will, but they won't fix the problems with uh, congestion and embodied energy and sole occupant vehicles when 90% of the transport task is by private vehicles. So, uh, so response the on the, the importance question? of moving right. in that direction. Okay. Well, just, just to answer that and the previous question on small business in general, the, the big problem we still have in this country is that we have leadership 
that is still not accepting that climate change is real. And the result of that is we have this continual um, friction between the different sides of politics and the different sides of business, whether it's small business or large business. They can't get together to actually optimise the approach to solving the emissions and the climate, climate problem. I mean, if we're going to get on top of this, we have got to get all of the actors on one page pushing in the same direction. And then I think things will start to happen far more quickly than we're seeing them. Big business has a critical role to play in committing to the fact that that's what actually should be happening. And it won't happen through industry organizations because they're lowest common denominator. It has to happen by some of the big guys coming out and saying, look, this is serious, we're now going to move on it. Stop all the disinformation and the nonsense, whether they're from the fossil fuel industry, the agricultural industry, or whatever. Um, we have to collectively now get our minds around this thing and move forward constructively. So that's what has to happen, I think, to make all of this really uh, start to generate the sort of speed we want and the type of investment that Heidi's talking about. Paul, I, th I get the feeling like in Australia we're in a bubble on transport that actually overseas electrification is moving very fast, but we just don't see it here. Well, I mean, you look at what happened in China. I mean, in China in the last 10 years, they put in a high-speed rail system which is bigger than the entire system in Japan. We can't even build the link between Melbourne and Tullamarine. What you're going to see from now on is increasing legal action around the world if companies do not act. That's what the regulators around the world are now telling them they've got to do. If you look at the Netherlands, where um, you have a human rights bill, Shell has now been taken to court for not acting in accordance with its supposed commitment to the Paris Agreement. Um, the same has happened in the United States with Exxon and so on. It's very hard to get a lot of these legal cases up, but you're going to see more and more of them, and some will succeed, which they did in Holland. The government has been forced to change its climate uh, strategy because of a high court decision that was a result of uh, public pressure. Just quickly on, on that, I was given, someone said something to me recently that, that, that stopped me in my tracks for a second. They, they said, not all corruption is illegal. And when we have, when we have people transitioning immediately from Minerals Council to the Prime Minister's office and we have MPs transitioning immediately to, to industry, uh, we have a form, I think, of, of, of white-collar crime. Uh, and you know, who, who, who could say that the sports rorts is anything but uh, a form of corruption or a form of, uh, of white-collar crime? I just want to pick up on some of the comments earlier about our transmission network. And it's, we are constrained, uh, you know, a, a capacity to generate solar is constrained by a transmission network. 30 years ago, we had a government that cashed in and essentially divvied up the distribution lines between, what, five different companies. You look at the experience of the MBN Co, that in order to upgrade copper to fibre, essentially had to buy out the private sector, junk the existing infrastructure and create their own. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think that business and these five separate businesses can actually combine to upgrade a network or whether the government actually has to nationalise a lot of the stuff that's been privatised. Quickly say, I, I personally can't see that we got any benefit from privatising the transmission network. I'm not sure what benefit we got from privatising retail either. There has been benefit in privatising generation. It's, there's, there's been a lot of competition between them, a lot of innovation that probably wouldn't have happened if, if we still had just a single, uh, a, a single party. But yeah, the transmission networks, um, I, I think there would be a lot to be said for, for uh, 
unprivatised. I don't want to say nationalisation because that sounds uh, very scary. Um, but there's no political appetite for it, unfortunately. Um, we're not very good at un unscrambling eggs in Australia. Uh, those those assets are now owned. Uh, so, so many fingers in so many pies that own those that I don't know how we unscramble that. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and I'd like to dedicate tonight's show to two train drivers who died on the Sydney to Melbourne train just recently. I'm very grateful to all the train drivers that have carried me over more than 40 years back and forth from Sydney to Melbourne, Melbourne to Sydney, and it's shaken my trust in, you know, the maintenance of our infrastructure here, and I'm... I'm very sad to hear about this tragic loss of those people's lives. I'd like to just dedicate the program and remember those people because we're going to make a great transition. We're going to see a great disruption of many services in the uh, adaptation to climate change, mitigation of climate change, and we don't want to see this sort of, this sort of tragedy. My idea has always been not to fly, hardly never fly especially when you, you know, it's just Sydney, Melbourne or something like that, you can take the train. But this has really made me feel very undermined and I just wish we could get on top of getting those services really well run. And um, oh. tonight's program has been from the Climate Emergency Summit at Melbourne Town Hall. Thank you to the people uh, who run that, who made the podcasts available. You can find many more podcasts if you just look up Climate Emergency Summit 2020. I'd like to thank the guests tonight um, who spoke on the panel, Ian Dunlop, Heidi Lee, Simon Holmes Accord, Paul Gilding and Paddy Manning. Good night and good luck. We should be talking, reacting to promises heard If we just wait, be patient for the trickle down to work Well, I don't see it, I'm skeptical of these empty words They cannot save us, that's for sure Wait for heaven to answer our call We think the market itself can do it all Logic of profit in this climate will be our downfall Not paying for the damage that we cause This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world This changes everything Don't you see This changes the world Changes the world The climate's changing we know this, the science is now clear Heat waves becoming more dangerous than they've been before We must not wait to confront 
this recklessness of power when they claim it's a conspiracy of fools. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. This changes everything, don't you see? This changes the world. Changes the world. Changes our world. Changes our world. Changes our world. This changes everything, don't you see? It changes our world.